Motors Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Let's rev up the conversation. Time for Driven Radio Show. Hey, car fans, welcome to Driven Radio, your weekly automotive happy hour. I am Brett Hatfield, here with our engineer and co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Mark Groves. Y'all. How you doing? I am uh, pretty good, actually. Cool, man. It's good to see you. It's been a. It was a nice day, dude. The the weather has been so wonderful. Past weekend was awesome, and I'm, I I like this. It's, yeah, it, I think it's called fall. Yeah. <laughs> except, you know, Mother Nature is a real mother. Uh, She's going to kick us in the teeth again for one more week. Uh, it's going to get really hot until. I think next Wednesday or Thursday, and then it's down in the seventies, and there are no eighties after that. Ah, uh, well, you know, until what December? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> our, our manic depressive uh, weather here. Yes, yeah, a little schizoid. <laughs> we are coming to you from the Driven Radio Studios in the Driven Radio secret hidden bunker. That's yeah. a, that is my wife's dining room. <laughs> In the news from Haggerty's Matt Fink, he's got uh, lessons that he's learned over a year of classic car ownership and the new perspective he has on it. Our special guest this week is Stephen Duncan Peters of Curated. Stephen will be here to tell us about the wonderful world of AMGs. Oh, God. You know, I didn't even know what an AMG was until I did this show, and I'm like, those mm-hmm. kind of rotten. Mm-hmm. You ought to <laughs> look at the picture on his Facebook page. Uh-oh. Oh, it makes my gums sweat. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he's going to tell us about the wonderful world of AMGs, what he does for curated, how his degree in auto restoration from McPherson by God <laughs> College helped him land his dream job, and how he helped his clients find their unicorn Lamborghinis. <laughs> God, what a life, man. Yeah, and doesn't we, suck. And, and we do this. Anyway, let's get to the news from Haggerty. I bought my first classic, and a year later, here's what I've learned. This Mm. is from Mr. Matt Fink over at Haggerty. Uh, And he outlines the lessons he has learned about classic car ownership over a year after purchasing a 1971 Mini Cooper Mark III, a car small enough you can stick in your pocket. (laughs) It is a rather lengthy read, but it's well worth the time. And a few of the lessons he has learned are as follows. And what's funny is how coincidental those are to things I've experienced with Corvettes and other stuff. So one, the value of the car has nothing to do with the impact it has on the people around you. This is true. He said he parked the uh, Mini next to a $300,000 McLaren and the the Mini pulled all the attention. Well, you remember that uh, one car show I went to and I showed you a picture of it and you're like, that's the coolest car because I'm always drawn to the, the big, mm-hmm. blood, ugly classics. And it was a 1960 uh, Dodge, um, not Monaco. I, now I'm blanking on it. That white one? Yeah, yeah. That had um, the little give, uh, give me a, cup g- holder? Give me a second. Matador. Matador. Dodge yes. Matador. And it's, that thing was just awesome. And That I t- was a gorgeous car. And you and I were both sitting there trying to figure out, okay, is the machined cup holder that's in there. Is, <laughs> is that, that original? Some, did that come from the factory or is that something they made? But it looked like it went with the car. Yeah, the, the car was beautiful. The story was great. Talked to the fellow for quite a while, the owner, and it drew such an eye of people walking by. Same thing for uh, when we were at the um, uh, Downtown Liberty Memorial. Yeah, yeah. For the great show, the uh, that fellow that I had a long interview with, the older fellow that had the uh, little green car, yes. the one we saw on the road. Yeah, yeah. That... Uh, 
people were you're, stopping constantly. You're thinking of that Kaiser Darren. Yes. Yes. And people were, everyone, everyone who walked by stopped and looked well, at it and with those pocket you, doors on it. When you see a car yeah. where the doors slide into the front fenders, that's really freaking cool, man. It's like James Bond's dad's car. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Q's dad's car. Yeah. <laughs> He's the one who thunk it up. I dated Miss Moneypenny's mom in that. Well, the, the one time I can, well, not one time, but I've had this happen a lot, but the one that really stood out to me is when I still had the 61 Impala and I oh, had it yeah. parked next to like this lime green metallic Ferrari 488 out at Stonegate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stonegate Plaza. That, the old dude who pulled up in that was so angry because that 61 <laughs> drew all the crowd and nobody cared about the Ferrari. It's nobody. true. Bless your hearts. We like Ferraris, but uh, yeah, there's, yeah, just there's something about that oddball going, what the hell? Well, there's something about a completely built, chromed and polished 409. <laughs> it just draws a lot of attention. This 71 Mini Cooper, by the way, I'm looking at pictures of it. Isn't that what, um, oh God, what is, oh. Mr. God. Bean. The Jason Bourne supremacy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah when yeah. he was driving all down with that chick. Yeah, he drove, a, or J- drove it down the stairs. You've never seen anybody drive the wheels off of a Mini Cooper until you've seen that. Yeah. Now, or, or. The three of them in both the original Italian job and then the updated version. Oh, my God. Yeah, okay, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's they're fantastic little cars. They are <laughs> they are interesting. Yes. Uh, one of the things <laughs> that he showed in that article is a picture of the horsehair firewall. <gasps> yeah, I didn't know that either. Uh, uh, Plymouth's, my 1955 Plymouth. Horsehair? The fi- same, no, the, the horsehair, it might have been in the firewall because it was also underneath the rubber mat. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a total effing nightmare because all it did was suck water into that mm-hmm. hair and then keep it there on top of the metal. Yeah, there you go. That smelled lovely. Oh, it sucked. So the other, uh, the second observation he had is classic cars have some unique features, and one of the ones he mentioned <laughs> in uh, about his mini was it was designed by Alec Isagonis, who was trying to shave weight any way he could, so there was no radio in it. But Isagonis was a smoker, so every place in there in the car (laughs) is is when an arm's reach of an ashtray. Yeah, you got them in the doors, you got them in the dashboard, you probably have it tucked into the the bench seat, so the back people in the back seat could have it in their doors in right there. Well, and (laughs) that reminded me of one of my favorite features of both the Impalas I've had and both of the older Corvettes and the, also the third-generation Corvettes, the fresh air inlet down around your feet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, on, the, on the 60 Corvette, it's a big oval right in front of the windshield, and you pop it up, and that sucks all kinds of air in. Uh, if you forget to close it when you wash the car, <gasps> yes, it, it sucks in water and soap, too. <laughs> it does. Been there. <laughs> Third observation he had is classic cars are slow, or at least he said that one is, um, most classic cars are yeah. slow. I got that 65 Stingray. It's got a 327, 350 horse engine. Of course, that's when they were ready, gross horsepower, not net. And a close ratio four speed and side pipes. And you hear that car, and it sounds like a public menace. You sound like you're doing something wrong even when you're not. Yeah. And it feels <laughs> fast when you're driving, and it does handle pretty good. Yeah. But if you put me on a road course with a new Camry, I'd get the crap kicked out of me. Yeah. And that's just facts, folks. It's reality. It sucks, but there it is. You know, there are some exceptions to that. Uh, You know, old Cobras, they're damn fast. Yeah. And uh, there are some other cars, but most cars, you pit them against your average 
run-of-the-mill Camry or a Honda Accord or, you know, Magoo cars, not not cool fast cars. <laughs> just Gershie getters and crap like that. They got beat off the line by a Kia, son oh, of a bitch. I'll tell you what, and I, I, I probably told this story before. Uh, in 2016, Rhonda and I had the this old Cora, the 60 Corvette, out in Vail for the Vail uh, Wheels and Wings and the Vail Automotive Classic. And we got really, really lost trying to come back from the Vail Valley Jet Center back to Vail without getting on a highway. Right. But it was a 72-degree day, not a cloud in the sky, just gorgeous. And it was, uh, you know, early September, and the aspens had already started to change color. Oh, and those leaves dude. are that brilliant yellow gold. Oh. And we wound up going through a couple of uh, uh, national forests. And then, uh, you know, got to Leadville, put gas in the car, drove down to Copper Mountain, and then got back on the highway to go to Vail. Yeah. Uh, this is a really long way of saying we got back on the highway to go to Vail. <laughs> I'm driving that thing on bias ply tires. Oh. And we're doing about 80 because the speed limit's 75 and everybody does 90. If you're doing 80, school buses pass you. <laughs> and I'm sawing at the wheel and working to keep it in one lane. The car's, the car's loud. We got the top up. It's making a lot of noise. And this gal in a Mazda SUV passes me in the left lane. Couldn't have been more bored. And she's drinking a cup of coffee while she's passing me. Meanwhile, I feel like I'm Ken Miles at Lamar <laughs> trying, trying to drive this car. I just want to live. I'm look, looking over at her. Dude, she's on the verge of sleep. She couldn't have been more bored if she tried. That's what 60 years of technology will get you, right? There. So, yeah, uh, most modern cars, with the technology has come so far that they're easy to drive and they're really fast. Yeah. And you you don't even notice it because you're so insulated from all of it. Yeah. Well, even uh, you know that 2000 Nissan that I bought, uh, it's a five speed, uh, uh, four wheel drive, and just even doing a yeah, five it's, speed, it's been twenty some odd years. Yeah. And I'm like, oh wow, this is ah, huh, I have I'm, I remember this, but this yeah. is a different. I'm feel. involved again. Yeah, exactly. And even the power steering is is a different feel to it because yeah. that pickup truck was like, oh, I could take one finger and yeah. spin it. And this is like, oh, I got to work it a little bit. Okay. It's, uh, boy, I remember you, driving. You you drive older cars and you step back 20, 30, 40 years, and oh, 50 sh- years. And every time you take a step back, you're like, oh, I see what happened. You ever want to, you ever want to really know what it was like for great, great granddad and the, and the size of the Kazats on the, on these people that drove those go drive something so old that it does not have power steering and power no brake. power brakes. Oh, and, and four drums. wheel drums. Yes. Drums all the way around. I tried. I. I. Oh God. I, and I wish I'd have bought it. I, I was just such a stupid asshole. But uh, there was a '67 Monaco that oh, uh, uh, I took for a test drive. It was near Lake of the Ozarks, and this thing was green and and all this stuff. But uh, honest to God, I I was breaking my hips trying to stop that thing mashing down on that brake yep. pedal. Yeah. And uh, that was that's actually kind of what made me. No, I'm not going to do it. You've come a long way, baby. (laughs) Fourth observation, the work never seems to end on a vintage or classic vehicle. Classic cars are never finished. They just aren't. They just aren't. I've had enough of them. You know, I've had that one since I was 18, and that's been a really long time. Uh, They're just never done. There's always going to be something to fix on them. Yeah. And, you know, modern cars are like that, too. It just seems to happen less frequently. Uh, tolerances are much tighter, tooling is much tighter, but 
old cars, there's always going to be something to do. Fifth observation he had, everyone has an opinion about your car. Love it or hate it, <laughs> almost everybody will have a different thought on your vintage ride. Truth. I've been at shows and had... It, we used to do the same show every year at a nursing home that my grandfather lived in, and I'd help organize it. And one of the old duffers who lived in that home would come out every year and take one look at my Corvette and say, Best day of my life is the day I got rid of my crappy Corvette. And I'm just thinking, you know, take your show someplace else, Jack. I don't need to hear it. <laughs> it it's surprising you know, how people are quickly willing to uh, to share that type of thing. Yeah. I'm sure he didn't think, you know, two dots of it. He's like, I'm just, uh, just having a chat about how much your great car that you yeah, know I sucks. I the best day of your wife's life was the day you moved in here. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and there it is. Uh-huh. I'm not bitter. I'm just talking. I'm perfectly willing to sling that right back at you, dude. And the final thought he had is he's gotten attached to it and didn't want to sell it, even though the idea when he got the car was to fix it up and resell it. But the memories and the effort involved in making the car right do have an emotional price. They do. They do get into your heart. Well, when, you, when you've looked at it that much and you've done all of that uh, research on it, et cetera, and you learn a certain amount of appreciation for at least some of it, uh, you do get it weirdly attached. That 55 oh, yeah. Plymouth was a freaking beast. And I got all these rose-colored gl- glasses. I got 18 uh-huh. pair of them for that damn thing. Uh-huh. And I'm sure that if I drove it again, I'd be like, oh, wow, this what is really... What a crap wagon. Yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has less energy than I do when I get oh, up in the morning. Man, but I, uh, I got the same thing for a couple of the Corvettes I've had because I've had a bunch of them. Uh, I inherited a 70 coupe from my uncle and I assembled it myself. I got it mostly disassembled and I came up with new curse words for that car. Didn't you have a few Malaysiers ones too, that look great, but just kind of gutless uh, or or was it the, you know, Brett Hatfield doesn't buy gutless. No, no. (laughs) I I had some that weren't that fast, but every one of them was fun in its own way. In its own way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, the 74 convertible I had, it it was not fast. Of course, neither is the 60, uh, but it was blue. It had 12,000 miles on it. Oh my God. It had 12,000 miles on it in 2000 and it was a four speed and the top went down. (laughs) So even if it, even if it was slow, God, you got to get to (laughs) roll your, roll your own gears and you, you know, you could put the top down and it sounded okay. And I love blue cars and it was blue and you know, it wasn't that bad. It was kind of fun. So they've all been fun in their own way. The one you would think, you know, at least for driving experience would be the least fun, is the 60. No power steering, no power brakes, you know, uh, four-wheel drums. And until recently, it was still on bias plies. And it'd follow every ring groove in the road (laughs) without fail. And, you know, I've said a bunch of times, a panic stop on that would make you wonder, do I need to check my drawers? (laughs) You know, Uh, but... It's just such a cool-looking car. You can't be in a bad mood when you're driving it. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I absolutely understand everything he said in the article. Go back and find that. We'll have the link on DrivenRadioShow.com. Matt Fink is the author. It is a lengthy read, but, boy, it is Car Guy Nirvana.
Nice. Our special guest this week is Stephen Duncan Peters of Curated. Stephen will be here to tell us about the wonderful world of AMGs, what he does for Curated, how his degree in auto restoration from McPherson by God College helped him land his dream job, and how he helps his clients find their unicorn Lamborghinis. God, what a cool job, man. All this and much more is coming up next on Driven Radio Show. Welcome back to Driven Radio, coming to you from Driven Radio World Headquarters. Our special guest this week is Stephen Duncan Peters, a vintage supercar dealer curated. Stephen is one is well regarded as one of the leading AMG historians and focused on early AMG Mercedes. He holds a bachelor's degree in auto restoration from McPherson by God College. <laughs> McPher- <laughs> Stephen is focused on collection management, specializing in vintage supercars with an emphasis on 80s and 90s Lamborghinis. We're going to have to talk about that. Stephen, welcome to Driven Radio. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, thrilled to. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your experience attending McPherson College and going through the restoration program, and how has that played a part in your career path thus far? Played a huge role. Um, as everyone remembers, the life kind of changed for pretty much everyone, and I think it was March of 2020. So, I was, I'm a non-traditional student. I've had numerous years of community colleges and back and forth since I graduated high school in 2012. So I didn't really find my path at McPherson until, you know, 2019, but did various other things, worked around a community college, but always was playing with cars in every capacity, but never actually decided to fully commit. I did commercial real estate, did finance, did, you know, work for numerous banks and everything else as well, got my real estate license. Then I wanted to further that a little bit. And I said, you know, I need to get my, finish up my degree. So I said, let me go apply to this school. I can, I like cars. I can play with cars and go to college at the same time. So then I decided to jump fully into cars um, and then was the best thing I ever did. But joining McPherson was probably, it was the best thing I ever did, but we, my AR, which stands for auto restoration intensive classes were in the spring semester of 2022, which was kind of difficult when you're taking sheet metal engine rebuilding and drivetrain all virtual, but we made it work. We did the best of it that we could, but that's that school is probably one of the best things I've done where you really get to see how small the actual community is, where there's friends of mine that I've made, and I know that they're lifetime friends, that, and they end up in numerous places all over. So he interned at the Revs Institute, and he was an intern at Gooding, yet he lived down the street from me, and I had no idea just because of it took us a thousand miles to meet all the way in Kansas. <laughs> nice. Well, you know that uh, the real estate license, when every time you would show a house, you go, and this is the, the garage. garage. <laughs> I did, did that every issue. time. <laughs> I, I, was doing, I was doing commercial, so it actually was always talking to all my friends that own shops to try to renew their leases for their property management stuff. So <laughs> How many bedrooms does it have? I don't know, but it has a four-car garage. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. That's right, exactly. by God. So how did you find your way to Curated? So it was actually a pretty natural progression. Um, I've always had an interest in these vintage supercars. It's kind of the cars that I grew up with. And there was, it goes all the way back to 2010. My father was, he knew that some of these cars were cheap 
And when all the stuff was cheaper back then, and he said, you know, if I don't buy something now, I'm never going to buy it. So I had the, the fortunate pleasure of helping my father acquire a 1988 Lamborghini Countach in 2010 oh. when nobody wanted them. And people like, talked and said, oh, yeah, you know, why do you want that car and everything else? And through the power of social media and being a white Countach, John Tamarian eventually tracked me down. So we became, you know, rather rather organically we grew together as an organic friendship. And he asked to buy my father's car. And it's just, it, it's a part of the family. So it's, it's, it wasn't for sale at the time. But then we just started chatting. And then he asked me for some asking questions about certain cars. And then I we found out that we really enjoyed the AMGs and that was his kind of forbidden fruit. His father's workshop was down the street from Rentex headquarters. So anytime that his father was working on these Italian supercars, he would always see hot rod Mercedes blasting past the door. So for him, that was the forbidden fruit. And I've kind of tracked down a couple of these early AMG hammocks. And I told him one day, I said, Hey, you know, I, I know where one of these cars are. And then he sent me up to go look at, one of the cars for him. And then, then they ended up purchasing one of those cars, which turned out to be the black car and driver press car. So that was a kind of a natural progression and organic uh, on all fronts. For the uninitiated. Now, I'm not one of them, but for the uninitiated. <laughs> for Mark. <laughs> please, please explain what an AMG Hammer is. So an AMG Hammer is, was a car made by AMG. It was an independent tuner company. Uh, when Mercedes, they, they were making hot rod Mercedes, they basically took the, the Shelby Cobra formula of taking the biggest engines that they had and shoving them in the smallest cars possible. Uh, they were a franchise opportunity up and up, their franchise outlet up until 1990 when they got purchased. And they would do whatever you wanted as long as you could pay for it. And they started by modifying Mercedes, everything with body kits, wheels, suspension, paint work, uh, engine performance, you know, Everything done from double overhead cam conversions, manual transmission conversions, custom leather con interior trimming, uh, Recaro seats, refrigerators, custom stereos, custom bodywork, <laughs> anything that you wanted with your Mercedes, they would do. And they would, it was just exceptional quality, just incredible, just incredible performance on, on all fronts. And I'm guessing some of what you're talking about now and being knowledgeable about it is how you became to be. Uh, curated AM genius. Uh, <laughs> at least that's what we've been told. Yes, yes. Uh, it's been a recent term of endearment at the office. I, going back to how cars kind of stay in the family, certain things. Uh, my father said you can have anything you want as long as it's an old Mercedes because it's safe, and which they are. So I, I still have that car today. Is a 1990 Mercedes 560 SEC. And like every teenager, as soon as you get your first car, what's the first thing you want to do? Every hot rodder is go faster and look cooler. So and that's kind of where I fell down the rabbit hole with these AMG cars is I wanted these speed parts, but they didn't exist. I couldn't go to the dealer. I couldn't buy them. They didn't exist. And it turns out that this company that although exists today, all the parts that I wanted are gone now. So I can't Ugh. buy those. And I had to, you know, scour the forms and go through eBay. Then, you know, it's, this guy has it, and, but he won't sell it. So then you make friends through the through the through the network of these cars, and this guy is an independent guy, but he buys these parts too, <laughs> so you can buy them if he's having a good day. But then all of a sudden, there's a guy that has a stash that bought all the remains of the company that's in a warehouse, but he doesn't sell anything. So it's the the classic story of all these old parts, and then the kind of the, the natural progression of 
joining with John and then they're asking me for certain advice and there's still things that we're learning about these cars today. Uh, it came up in conversation that another historian said this guy put these weird gray gauge these stickers over the gauge faces and I said no those are those are correct because it matched the color of the interior and he's like I didn't know that they did that. So it's, it's <laughs> even today that we're we're still learning about all the things that they actually did with these cars, which is a ton of fun. Why do I get the feeling that Steven is the guy who's going to be able to help me find all the parts for the Schadenfreude Express? Oh, my God. Laughably, yeah. There we go. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, I got that in my back pocket. Yeah. We're going to have to have a conversation <laughs> after that. Every time I walk by the front end of that S600, it gives me a dirty look. <laughs> there we go. Why have you forgotten me? <laughs> what year? Uh, in 99, last year, W140. I got my first speeding ticket in a 140, 600, 26,000 mile. It was a one owner car. I remember that. That was funny. And how fast were you going? I... <sighs> do, your, was... do your parents know? <laughs> yeah. Did oh, you... yeah, they know. It was a, it was 85 and a 65, I think it was. Oh, or oh that's not that 70. bad. That's not that bad. No, it wasn't that bad. But it was, a, it was, I actually was my first job out of high school. I was interning at a shop that still exists today called Blue Ridge Mercedes, who's um, been a great dear friend of mine. I, I met him in 2010, and I remember the first time I called him, I called him three times in a row, and we had to spend about an hour on the phone together just discussing like the problems I was having with my Mercedes SEC. And I could tell that we were just cut from the same cloth, and I was like, wow, this is a guy that I could really resonate with, and would just call him and help me work through certain projects, and then became more of a mentor in my own personal life. And he was... As, as crazy about these AMG cars as I was, if not more, and I uh, was interning for him. And then he bought this car from another gentleman I tried buying a car from years and years ago. I he paid like eight grand for it. Black, black, one-owner car, woman-owned, and just stole it for eight grand. And I was driving it back. And then, yeah, I was just driving through from Kentucky to Georgia and just, it was like nine o'clock at night sitting in a dark corner. So as uneventful, but... well. One of the things I know about those, because we've had this car forever, is uh, the perception of speed in them. It's really easy to let it get away from you or to be moving along and thinking, hey, I'm doing 75, and you look down, and it's a buck 20. Oh, yeah. The rolling Kentucky highways down heading down south, uh, you know, and then you're 19 years old in a 600 that's not yours. So <laughs> what else are you going to do? <laughs> Stick your foot to the floor. <laughs> so, exactly. Uh, what are the four biggest misconceptions or little-known facts about AMG Hammers? Four biggest misconceptions about AMG Hammers is probably, first and foremost, is what constitutes a real AMG Hammer. Um, and then what, what makes them special as well. So what, see, you... what was the hammer based on initially? We didn't quite get to that. Uh, what, sure. was the, what was the base car and then what was done to them? So I actually have uh, something here. Uh, it's a little magazine. Little index card so it's a 1987 they were not all 87s they were made um, up until 1990 but it was the 124 mercedes e-class where they shoved the mercedes m117 uh, engine in it out of the s-class but then they took the drivetrain the differential the axles and then doubled this camshafts from 20 from a 16 valve to a 32 valve double overhead cam and then proceeded to drop that into the E-Class, which was originally a straight six-cylinder car, and did all the subsequent supporting modifications with body kits, wheels, suspension. When, they, when these cars were new, and they were they were like $45,000 E-Class-based donor cars. Yeah, they were not, any, 
they were not inexpensive. How big did that 117 double overhead cam engine wind up being? So actually, it's interesting how even today we're still learning about things. Um, they did any sort of variations with the Gen 1 and Gen 2s. So I've seen a 5 liter, I've seen a 5.2 liter, and then a 5.4 for a first gen, and then a second generation 117. I've seen a 5.6 and then a 6 liter. And then up until the last couple of years, we've now recently known that they've done 6.6 liters. So after the only reason I knew that they existed was with a conversation with the former CEO, his name is Richard Buxbaum. And I asked him, I said, hey, he said, yeah, towards the last like six months of our production, we were experimenting with some stroker race engines. I don't think any survived. And that was it. There was no documentation of them. There was nothing else. And that was a USA only thing because of how kind of loose these franchises were. And they were based out of Chicago. So they had all the motorsports guys in Indianapolis and Wisconsin and everything else. So they was doing billet stroker crankshafts for special clients. So up until recently, we didn't know that they existed. So your your variations were anywhere from if it was a later car, a 5.6 or 6.0, and then up until recently, 6.6 is now the biggest we've ever seen. What kind of output were they getting, or is there any documentation to tell? Um, no 6.6s have ever been dynoed, but I believe it was 385 horsepower or 425 foot-pounds of torque, and that was good enough to run 0 to 60 and then about 5.4 seconds, depending on your rear end gears. So the other the other misconception about these cars is how unique they all are, which is one of their draws. So they would be, they made either coupes or sedans, and there's one wagon that exists in the world, and each one of these cars is completely different. So there's everything down to 327 rear end gears all the way up to a 224 rear end gear. So you could do that. You can do custom interiors with leather trimmed seats and then now there's one manual car that exists in the world and uh the guy blue ridge was going through it and it was a sax motorsports twin disc clutch that he's never seen before uh the only <laughs> reference to see was a kind of a formula ford uh, race car style clutch but it's sax genuine motorsports stuff to really show how extreme they went with these cars and then you'd see the usa cars got sheet metal molded ducktails when the euro cars got stick on bodywork so they were actually doing real metal work to these cars, which was another draw. Um, tying it back to McPherson is where I can actually now appreciate that, which even makes the cars even more interesting because of the old world craftsmanship that was involved. So it's each one of these cars is different. I mean, the, the, the trunk itself was a $15,000 option. And what else is it? They, they made coupes, they made sedans, but yeah, each one was different. And that's wow. one of the draws with those. Recently, Ed Bolian was watching one of these and talking about it a lot, and he said it, it rapidly got outside of his price range. Do you know the car I'm talking about and uh, what I it do. went for? I do. I, yeah, that car I do know. I was actually familiar with that car. Turns out that we were trying to – I think Curator did have an interest in that car as well, but that was a – I think that car had about 19,000 miles on it. It was one of the cars that was owned by a baseball player at one of one point in its life, and then it was acquired. Um, it, I, Ed Bowling did a whole Vinwicky story about the car where it yeah. got loaded up with a bunch of cocaine, and then I got arrested and then was seized by the DEA. Then but that's it, where I believe the baseball player got it. Was that car a, a coupe or a sedan? And yes. it, do you know the so particulars of it? Yep, so it was a gray one ninety uh, one ninety nine paint coupe, blue black metallic coupe. It had about 19,000 miles on it. I believe that was a six-liter car as well. 
So that was what made that car so unique was it was the first time that one of these cars has been available for a public auction in over 10 years, I would have to say, where they knew what it was. There was the only manual car traded hands at RM's Young Timer collection in like 2014, I believe it was. So that was the only manual car, and that car sold for 80000 then. But the, the, the Hammer Wagon and the Hammer Coupe that used to all live together in the same collection popped up in like 2010 at Barrett-Jackson. So this was one of the reasons why that car sold for such stratospheric numbers that it did was it was the public's first opportunity to get their hands on one of these cars. And what and did it go 19, for? I think the final bid was 761, I believe, if I remember correctly. That's extraordinary. Over wow. three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, when, when you look at it, there's there's only 13 U.S. cars that were built to them. Going back to the misconceptions of what makes a, a car a hammer, a hammer, and then there's USA cars, and there's cars that are built in Japan, then there's cars that are built in Germany. So each one of those cars has their own nuances, like the trunks, the sheet metal work on on the body kits, on on the trunks. USA only got that, but USA never got the wide bodies. Um, the the later German cars, you can get them with flared bodywork. There was another car that traded recently, a blue CE coupe. Uh, it didn't have the metalwork trunk, but it had steel fender flares added to it. So it was then that car was actually made in Japan, so made with AMG parts. So it, it goes how these cars are so unique, and each one of them has a story. So each one of these cars is a case-by-case basis. I'm personally a fan of the USA cars because I like the history of the people that were involved with it. Uh, the people that were involved with AMG in Chicago, they then went to form on uh, Rentec. Hartmut was the lead technician there, and he went to form on um, Rentec down in Florida. Uh, the former AMG CEO, he's now an antique dealer in, in the Chicago area. The other gentleman, Andy Cohen, was founded AMG Beverly Hills that sold the best accessories uh, for many, many years with lambswool seat covers, mm-hmm. car covers, and built an entire brand off of accessories and the best catalogs. Uh, Bruce Kennepo was actually one of the service uh, shops for the West Coast cars as well, too. So, so knowing all of this, and being able to have access to a lot of the people who were involved. Have you ever thought of writing all this down and making an AMG compendium? It's, it's in the works. It is in the works. So I I do have a document of stuff I'm working on. It's a lot of, it's a lot of mental notes, but it's the, um, the famous John Lennon quote, life happens while you're busy making other plans. Mm -hmm. But now these cars are really starting to get their time in the, public spotlight so now it's actually making sense to to do it unfortunately we did lose uh andy cohen i think in 2016 2017 i believe what it was so one of the people that were involved with these cars has already passed and it does add to the urgency of actually documenting all of this but it's it is on my short list of things to do is to write everything down and document it and actually um i do have a couple of cars that i've photographed in the studio in 2020 there was two hammers that I had the opportunity to do with that. So it's in progress. It's in progress. One more AMG question. Uh, Curated will be exhibiting the largest gathering of AMG hammers ever assembled this coming weekend at the bridge in the Hamptons. Uh, yes, sir. Tell us more about the gathering, a couple of the cars there, and uh, sure. what is the occasion? Why? Well, it just it's the bridge is one of the best shows I've been to. It's a ton of fun. It's um, some people can call it, you know, a little pretentious, but 
it's 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 the it's a garden party, and that's the thing of being in the concourse world. We're prepping cars for Pebble and Amelia Island. On the other side of it, everyone's there to have a good time and just enjoy the scenery. So there's no pressure for this. There's no like we're not trying to compete to win an award. Uh, going back to when you would compete with the Mercedes at the MBCA concourse, every modification that AMG did would actually be a deduction. So like everything from the painted wiper blades to the to the wrong engine to all this other stuff because it wasn't installed by the factory yeah. because it's a tuner car is a deduction. So these cars have never really felt had their place for a concourse. So we're just deciding, well, hey, you know, these cars are getting some attention right now. Let's go and let let's have a let's bring them all out where they haven't been seen before. So a couple of interesting cars that I know of that are going to be there is going to be uh, the only hammer wagon that exists. That is a blue, um, blue with tan, or, I'm sorry, blue with gray six liter station wagon that actually started life as a diesel that they did in a conversion <laughs> because they were not bringing the station wagons to the U.S. in gas yet. So they bought the station wagon and then did the conversion for their best client. Um, Germany actually told USA, do not build it. It is more work than you think. And I think the total invoice was $250,000 on that car in 1987. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so, a base, so a base model hammer out the door will cost you one sixty-seven, just to give you an idea how much more work went into that, into the wagon. So that had an upgraded and, wood. That one had suede dashboard and other unique touches as well. You know, it kind of looks almost like one of those, uh, uh, the modern uh, Dodge Magnums. Oh no! Yes. Oh yeah, it's it's a, got a less aggressive front end, but that kind of slight curve to the body of it uh, along the roof yep. line, just that's kind of kicking. I'm wondering if some of that came uh, from the Dodge Mercedes partnership. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, Dodge Daimler, Daimler Chrysler, uh, Dodge Magnum. Yeah. Yeah, you wonder if the um, they did make an SRT Magnum wagon. I wonder if the uh, inspiration of the in Detroit, I wonder if they had that car on the wall there, but like we need to build that, but our version. Oh, you're, you you got to know that that came up in conversation somewhere, even if they didn't cop to it. It's it's killer. Oh, of course. Love it. So can you tell us uh, how you go about helping people find their dream Lamborghinis and maintain their collections? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's one of the, that's one of the things I really enjoy most about people is explaining to the nuances of the Lamborghinis and how, they were, they've now moved from ostentatious playboy cars to actually really serious investment pieces and with unique cars and interesting stories. A lot of times you'll see guys that saying, Oh, I want a Diablo or I want to want this, but then you don't, but then they don't understand that. Okay. There's 150 SE thirties ever made. Like that's it. That's all that there is. And then, Oh, well people will say, Oh, I want a purple SE 30. Okay. Well there's 18 of those. And then of those there's, you know, maybe, seven or eight of them with the purple with blue interior and then maybe six of them came to the united states and then there's maybe five other cars left to choose from one of the best things is explaining the nuances and the and just the intricacies and differences of each car so then helping people say hey you know what do you like are, are you a porsche gt2 fan or are you a gt3 fan if you're a gt3 fan i steer them more towards the early the low bodies the the, the raw the rawness and how radically different those cars are and how they evolved. I said, or are you looking for something you can live with you? I mean, not a, like a Kudash is livable, but do you want something with fuel injection? Do you want something with a little bit more power? Do you want the refinement? Do you want more leather? Do you want the power windows? And what is it that they like and helping them say, okay, there's a, 
I don't know they didn't say Countach for everyone, but they, the cars had a production run of 74 to 1990 and explaining how the cars evolved over the period of time and the different history and how that was the first car that Horatio Pagani actually designed was the 25th anniversary Countach. I can't imagine knowing all that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I say that, but if you talk more about crap, I do the same thing. <laughs> I, I believe it. All right. So with all of this in mind and knowing that uh, you may or may not be guilty of having a bit of a lead foot, uh, <laughs> what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? Ooh, the dumbest thing I've ever done, done in a car, I was actually thinking, was probably towing my SEC with my 99 two-door Tahoe um, all the way back from Atlanta or from McPherson to Atlanta would probably be with, with no towing experience. I'm like, all right, I'll figure this out. And then ending up in, it was one of the, it was the Southern route that took me through the mountains. I was going through the mountains through there. It was at night at like two o'clock in the morning and started pouring rain. <laughs> and then we're going through and all of a sudden I see there's police lights behind me. I'm like, what is all this for? And I look, and he pulls me over. He says, hey, do you have license registration? I'm like, yeah, can I help you? Yeah, your trailer tags are expired. And it was a U-Haul trailer, and the oh. cop didn't believe any of it. For some reason, I said, oh, yeah, because I definitely spray-painted U-Haul on the side of it, had me out of the car, <laughs> was searching, checking every paperwork, didn't understand how I was coming from Kansas with Kansas tags on one truck, and then this had Mercedes, and then this hadn't expired. So it was out on the side of the road in the middle of the night in a mountain pass with oh. drug dogs and search and everything. Cause he thought everything was stolen Then actually got <laughs> let off with nothing but a verbal warning, but it's a great reminder to check the basics of check your registration, check your lights and check the weather. It's a really simple <laughs> thing that a lot of people forget. And I think cause I was so overwhelmed with everything. And that's why I say it's the dumbest thing I've ever done because I didn't check the basics. Are my tags good? And did I check the weather? <laughs> Don't feel so. bad. I have a similar story that I brought on myself that is far dumber that I will share with you sometime. <laughs> yeah, offline. <laughs> uh, that, pro probably when we're at Luke's next year. <laughs> please. Oh, we, please. I can't wait. We've been speaking with Stephen Duncan Peters of Curated. You can find all the social media links for Stephen and Curated on read the on DrivenRadioShow.com. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Pleasure. Thank you, guys. Hope to do it again soon. Thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Driven Radio Show, and listen everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Mr. Mark Groves. Y'all. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio.